Well, let's uh, let's get into it. You, there's a lot of stuff that you, I know. Economics is kind of your big your uh, your big wheelhouse. Um, can you say like why you're interested in economics, what your education is in it, a little bit about your channel, and you know, just kind of get into the meat so we can have this conversation. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I don't have a background in economics. I have a background in in computer science, but I. Very good with uh, systems, or like determining bottlenecks in systems. That's that's in my profession. Started getting into economics okay. in about 2019. I kind of reached a point in my life where I I started off as as a, as a lefty, and um, I always thought like that the evil corporations are this and that. And then I started sitting in on these board meetings, where I realized that the people at the top really don't know what they're doing. They're bogged down by bureaucracy, mm. just like everyone else. And I didn't find any of that evilness that I, I had expected. So it kind of changed my mind with regards to how the economy is and how systems work. And then I just started okay. really enjoying debating. And I, I, um, I've done debating since September or July of last year. I ha didn't, do it in, didn't do it in high school or anything like that. And, but I, I really liked it and I, I had a knack for it. So, or at least the the economic system side of it. And I just kind of kept with it. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so when did you, I, uh, forgive me if I'm wrong. I thought you were an objectivist. Uh, yeah, I do study objectivism. But are you an objectivist? You identify I, as an OS. Do I ident identify as a student of objectivism? Oh my God. Fucking. All right. Well, objectivist confirmed by the Weasley way that they use language. <laughs> okay. You just like the fucking so every objectivist I've ever met is just like a fucking socialist. I'm like, you say something, you're like, that's not true, and they're like, how do you define the word identity? And it's like, oh my god. Uh, well, I, I okay, I don't, let's I don't get think, into this. Let, let's, let's get into your way. definition of this word. Let, let's put it this way: I don't know, I don't know enough, in my opinion, to to say that I'm a full on objectivist. But but Wellspring, for example, knows probably a lot more than I do, especially about the core philosophy. I, mm. I dabble with the philosophy I find very interesting. So far, I've found most of it, all of it, uh, correct as based on, on my life experience. So I can, I can map something that they say to something that I experienced in my life. Uh, and I do, but a lot of my time I do spend on, on economics and not necessarily objectivism, but I do kind of take the, the, the ideas of how to form concepts and how to abstract uh, complicated topics and simplify them with objectivist uh, concept formation. Okay. <laughs> so um, what, what is it that um, draws you to economics that like you want to discuss with like the end caps here? Like, is um, there, is there some unique difference that you, you find in our economic theory or something you wanted to talk about or pick apart? Cause I know you really wanted to have this conversation about I, econ I, and be like, you know, so I'm just I, curious. I, I, I guess I guess I want to have the conversation more about like our side needs to band together and come come up mm -hmm. with some with some good like ideas to then use in debates online with uh, with either socialists or or, or, or progressives. Um, I find that even though there are like a lot of things from the Austrian school, the Chicago school. Some, some of them may be a little bit dated or maybe people like have already uh, have an answer for them because they're like from the 70s, for example. But apart okay. from that, I do, have to, I do find myself 
not finding enough information, not finding enough clear ideas to communicate in debates. So I think mm. we should all band together and have like a, the same, the same, like the same front to attack uh, these points or defend these points. <laughs> so, okay. So can you, can you, can you come up with like a, a scenario that you want to talk about? Because I may not be that great at economics, but I'm, I'm pretty fucking good at rhetoric. <laughs> well, we do have a question in the chat already. If y'all okay. are interested. Sure. It's uh, what do you guys think about socialism or communism, and what do you think is the difference between the two? I answered his question with a quote for Hans Hermann Hermann Oppa, and I'm pretty sure he left after it. Uh, But I said, uh, democracy is the soft variant of communism, just to let him know how much I don't like either of them. But you can go ahead and answer. So I I'd like to like put a pin in that democracy thing at, at the end of the answer, but. I think socialism, well, I actually have a definition for socialism. Let me, let me bring it up. Okay. Uh, Cause I think there's like three different types of socialism in my opinion. And then we use these words interchangeably and it's incorrect. Okay. Socialism, <laughs> socialism is a collectivist doctrine that is built around having a majority in-group trying to persecute the minority out-group. It rejects private property rights so that a collective of workers can forcibly and violently remove private property from others to control it collectively. Control and ownership of the, appro- of the appropriated property is typically done by the state, but can also be done by a committee or, or workers' collective. <clears throat> Socialist leaders convince the public that there is a huge scarcity in the economy and that the minority is immorally excluding all wealth to themselves. I don't know that that's a good definition. It's a good description of socialism in reality. Um, I don't know yeah, that it's that like, is socialism. A, yeah, like I don't know that it's a good definition just because, you know, there's so many variants of socialism that would apply to most of those categories, but maybe not one. You, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And that becomes a problem for for us to be able to like pin them to the wall because their form of socialism doesn't advocate this or whatever. Right. You can't, like, you can't actually pin them to the wall. They won't let you that they will change definitions. They'll either use like the most, uh, dictionary definition when they want to exclude everything you say, or they'll use the most, uh, wide definition when, when they feel like it. So yeah, to some, to some degree, like I haven't seen a socialist, like kind of, uh, admit to what social historical socialism has done uh mm-hmm. or, or you may find a tanky that they say that would say yeah they did this and what so what but uh, they usually try to evade the subject um but typically like when i when i would do debates i don't debate socialists that much anymore i would debate sock dems or normies or progressives because i feel that's where the ideas can really propagate and uh, so basically like just like normies basically assuming socialism equals group claim over means of production is a corporation a socialist entity i don't see how corporations are individuals yeah so there is this thing from tick that uh, because um corporations are owned by the the public then it could be considered socialist and certainly people who like the 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 norway or the nordic model where the government owns shares in a, in a company, then they would necessarily need to use corporations to do that. Uh, 
and they'll use like sorry like social wealth funds and stuff like that but i can talk about that more. The, the thing the thing also with well, i don't i don't think i think it's i don't think that corporations are socialist entities i think i don't that think the so state that regulates corporations is a socialist entity and because of that it's 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 effect on the economy kind of makes everything quasi socialist right so like I don't see a reason why in a truly free market, a, a company or corporation, um, please don't dodge and soften the question. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm not dodging the question. I'm, I'm specifically answering why I don't think it's socialist. I think the state is socialist and it comes quasi socialist because of that. Um, but I don't see why a company couldn't function essentially the same. Um, but instead of having indi- like a large group of people own shares of the company, they have a, a contract that um, allows them some form of title transfer of, of, of a, you know, an agreement to, to, to some form of profits, et cetera. Like, I don't know that they need to actually own, like legitimately own a portion of the company in order for that to be considered um like socialists right like i don't i think you can still have one property owner um corporation would require a single owner with contracts with shareholders but not actual shares not contemporary corporate structure yeah that's that's what i'm saying but i'm thinking but i'm saying that the way that our economy is regulated by the state and the culture that we have i think it does make corporations socialist entities but i don't see a reason why they couldn't operate very similarly very similarly without without that issue contemporary corporate structure without the state is still socialist yes but also i don't think that it would exist that way without the state maybe it would i don't know why is casimir so fucking angry about at corporations right now when did you become a little commie go ahead (laughs) fucking he wants I, you to answer it without me copping out. I don't understand. Oh, if I if I think it's socialist, I think I don't think it's I don't think it's socialist because you can own you can privately own a share in, in a company. I I think that government regulation and, and stuff like that. Um I wouldn't say socialism per se, but like perhaps like fascist e kind of in a sense depends how big the, the regulatory state is. Uh, because in socialism you have controls the, you have owns the means of production and in, in fascism you have controls the means of production and if uh, the government so for, so for example let's Wait, say but hold uh, on. how is it not socialist if a corporation is a whole bunch of people own the means of production a whole bunch of private people own the means of production yeah, like if there's a collective ownership of the corporation, how is that not a socialist entity? I don't. I don't, so. Are you saying like a co- a corporation versus a co-op? Because it sounds similar in the way you're phrasing it. Not not co-op. I'm not talking about a co-op or an ESOP model, right? I just mean like a corporation that has public shares, where you have people that legitimately own a portion of the corporation. You have millions of people that own different little chunks of the corporation collectively. Mm-hmm. Right. And have these voting, these democratic based voting shares in doing so. I mean, it's voluntary, mm-hmm. but how is it not a socialist entity if, if, if that's the case? So I think, I think that socialism is kind of, depends. Are you asking or is this like a socialist talking point? Because if it's a, 
a socialist talking about that I would say no, that I'm, I'm actually I'm actually asking like how is it not a socialist entity if I mean because I would say that if you maintain the structure right mm-hmm. I'm, I'm where where you have hundreds thousands millions of people that all own percentages mm-hmm. um you know of a company then how is that not democratically run collective ownership of the means of production the shareholders that own a portion of the company they don't directly control the company they sometimes get to make decisions like once or twice a year they can elect representatives in the form of board members to kind of for them to then take care of the shareholders interests it's not exactly direct democracy per se but even but I wouldn't say that a corp is also a, a socialist entity. I would say a corp is just a business model within a capitalist framework. So you don't think it's socialism if you don't have single private property owners. Instead, you have collective ownership of property. Collective ownership could, of property is, you, is perfectly fine. I mean, yeah, if you, if you want to, if you want to call, so let's put it this way. If you want to have a co-op within, within capitalism, within a market, let's say, and you feel that this to you is close to your ideology, which happens to be socialism, and you enjoy that model within the capitalist framework, you know, have fun. If you're a, a fascist kind of, uh, um, let's not say fascist, let's say if you, if you think that a corporation where... Let me just actually, let me just describe fascism in, in this context because it's, it's more relevant. So fascism in this context would be you have a, a few corporations that basically do everything in the economy and the, gov- mm-hmm. the government will control them and the government will limit like new entrants coming into the market and competing with these large corporations and basically tell the corporations what to do, what to sell, how to sell it, what kind of music to play in the, in the offices, who they're allowed to hire or they're not allowed to all these sorts of things. Right. But the and they own that, the unions too, yeah. But, but the idea is that the, 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 the corporations and the government march together in, in, in an army towards something. And uh, there, are, there are kind of these models today. France, for example, has something like that. Norway has something like that, but with a more of a socialist element, social element, not socialist. Um, so that's kind of the idea. And, if you, and from my point of view, if you want to have a co-op knock yourself out. If you want to have a corporation, knock yourself out. Like, as long as everyone's voluntarily doing it, like, that's fine. Yeah, like, I don't, I don't have an issue with an ESOP model done properly where there's a single private property owner. Um, but, you know, portion, but your employment guarantees um, certain voting rights based off of shares that aren't actually ownership of the corporation, etc. Um, mm-hmm. And you I have no problem with that existing. I don't think it does very well under most circumstances, but like it's still socialist. Like you, even you yourself said that like a co-op model is like a socialist model. Um, well, I, my I question if, is, I said, if people interpret right, like, it that way, it's fine. Okay. But then, all right. But, but you, so you're not going to admit that a corporation is a, is in some ways a socialist entity because it's collective, uh, ownership of the means of production. I mean, look, I, I'm not so publicly th- traded, obviously. So to some degree, like I think that I think the idea from socialism is being injected here and forcing me to to change the way I look at the market and say, oh, this could be socialist. No, the market is 
voluntary. If you want to work in this particular structure, it works for you. You, you and your fellow employees or shareholders like it. It's fine. If this now, now resembles something socialist to you, or it smells like socialism to you, and you're happy with it, do what you want. As long as it's voluntary, as long as no one is forced, have fun. I'll move on from it. I would say it's definitionally socialism. Um, it doesn't resemble it. It is. It's working in a greater context of a, of a free market. Um, but if it's done in such a way that multiple people um, actually own portions of, of the company, um, then, then it's okay, not me, private property at that point. Let me ask this. So I, I, have a, I work with, a, with some colleagues of mine, and we're all consultants. Mm-hmm. And we all have mm-hmm. percentages in the company. Like we're all in the, like to some degree, we can all we, we can all be independent consultants, but we chose to work together. And we have a, mm-hmm. a share we have a, a share split between us. Are we are we socialist? Are you socialist are, or is our, is our is company is our company socialist? It's a socialist model. Yeah, without okay. a doubt. None none of us I mean, consider like, ourselves socialists, though. Right, but I'm not calling, but that's why, I, that's why I made you clarify the question, because I wouldn't call you socialist just because you engage in some level of socialism. Just like I wouldn't call a parent a socialist by virtue of the fact that, like, you know, they, they redistribute the wealth of the father that works and, like, you know, gives food to the children despite them not, you know, you, you know out of a sense of duty or obligation. I also wouldn't call that altruist. Right. Just because they're giving of themselves freely because they have a vested interest in values. Right. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know that engaging in one entity makes you a socialist, but I would say that ultimately in a free market, one of you would have to one of you would have to be the the sole person that is the that the title is transferred to. And, and then and the, the sole owner of the company and the rest of you would have to be individuals that have some form of contract um, that requires restitution if it's broken or something to reap a percentage of the profits or to have a percentage of like the say in the decisions of the company. I, th- I think that in this particular case, it will be like something like a producer-based cooperative. It's, just, it's basically like, you know, a bunch of consultants get together and like, present themselves as one company mm-hmm. uh but yeah anyway i think i don't think that the technicality here is super super important um yeah i mean it's just nerdy it's just nerdy like deep cut stuff you know that's kind of stuff i like you know casimir sure. and and uh schizoid man and me the other night between the three of us we we had this like a like a four-hour conversation about um you know conflict and private property and whether or not it's defined by the observer or you know the con, you know some form of given consent versus whether or not consent exists in the mind you know what i mean it's like these things are irrelevant to most discussions but sometimes they're kind of interesting and it is a, it is a good way to gauge how you kind of think about the economy but like ultimately if people want to create something that resembles like an esop model um, yeah, I don't, I don't have any issue with that being a part of people's voluntary employment in a, in a, in a company. I just think it has to be technically owned by one person. I, I think that, um, yeah, like if, if, uh, if people like to work in that way and for the sake of, um, let's say s- successful in the market, uh, 
this particular model is is effective at what it's supposed to do. So let's let's take this example, right? Let's say large companies or corporations are very good at economies of scale because mm-hmm. you know they have lots of money, they can buy machines, they 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 can make a lot of stuff very cheaply and let's say the uh, co- the corporations, the co-op, sorry, they're very good at economies of scope. Like they'll give you a very highly customized just to your liking more expensive but it's like it's more value to you and you're willing to pay that they'll do economies of scope better and that's why they may or may they may exist better in the market but if if let's say a corp tries to compete with economies of scale they'll fail and if a corporation tries to compete with economies of scope they'll find it very difficult mm. yeah i mean Sure. I mean, one. I mean, it it could be the co-op or small business. It doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, family-operated business. Yeah. The effectiveness of it in the market, how how well it does in the market, that that does kind of matter, if it can survive on its own. Well, I mean, well, I'm saying a a family-owned and operated business could just as easily do anything that a co a small co-op could do. Is all I'm saying. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Can I can I ask you a yeah, question? But, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Go ahead. So in in your debates, so let's take two examples with uh, with T Jump and with Econoboy. At some mm-hmm. at some point in the debate, they'll say, "Well, look, I I have all these receipts, I have all these results that say that my system, as as imperfect as it is, leads to X results." It, how would you do? You know, you understand what I mean, right? Consequentialism in in some to some degree. Mm-hmm. How would you, in an economic sense? like uh go about answering them with regards to your system i mean can you give me like a more specific example and like uh, me say let's, why let's, i think let's, that's let's wrong throw, uh, because it's kind of example dependent right let's say healthcare let's just say healthcare okay what about healthcare like My, socialist their, healthcare like their system is is better because they have all these studies so on and so forth right well so one of the problems that i think we're in is that the general audience is completely unaware of like Austrian theory, right? Mm-hmm. And like also economy economics is not my strong suit. I'm like okay. one of the few ANCAPs where economics is probably my weakest uh, form for debating. Just okay. to be fair, um, I'm, I'm you know all of my education and most of my reading and training is in is in social sciences. But okay. if we look at it. I think the the thing is is go okay. Well, show me the receipt, and it's very rare that I find a, a socialist that has receipts where you can't immediately show the problems in their receipts. Yeah, right? you can do and, that. Yeah, and so I usually attack the methodology and the bias. Um, but the problem is is that you have to have some form of positive prescription, and mm-hmm. so I think you you need to be able to attack the the bias. But you also need to be able to have some form of a historical example or something else that you believe did better. I right? fully agree. Fully agree. So, so when talking about healthcare, for example, you can attack the methodology. You can you can point a bunch of holes into it, and then they'll cope. And but you need to be able to hit them back with being like, no, what we need is a lodge system, like state corruption and government corruption and like elites that were upset by free market capitalism destroyed the lodge system so mm-hmm. that they could have you know exclusive control over these situations 
And this is when price increases and quality in, in quality of care decreases really start to occur is when the state involved themselves in it. And over and over and over again, we see these, you know, price increases and, you know, um, and cost increases, um, you know, or, sorry, price increases and quality of care decreases um, occur the more the government gets involved. And then, so that's, that's a positive prescription. So you need a positive prescription. You need logos. Um, but then I think what you also need is you need to counter with the horrors. Like you need that, that, that pathos, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, so, I mean, I try and debate, I, I try and approach rhetoric when I'm, when I'm, when I'm realizing I'm doing something wrong, I go all the way back to the cores of rhetoric, right? Which is Plato's tripartite, right? Pathos, ethos, logos. If your argument, if your full argument is missing one of these aspects of pathos, ethos, logos, it's a bad argument, right? And so attacking the methodology of the study, showing why there's all these holes and attempting to like kind of sprinkle in some Austrian ideas that like you haven't actually compared like terms. What you've done is just establish a historical fact and you're, and you're pulling causality from that. So that's, that's wonderful for logos, but it's boring. You need to establish some ethos. So you need to show, no, we do have some solutions and there are times in history where things are better. And then you need to hit with the pathos, the third part, which is, you know, if we didn't have social health care, like Dr. Fauci and the FDA, maybe thousands and thousands of gay people wouldn't have had to have died because the government refused to allow sensible medication, vitamins, and things that were working across the border and were arresting people and black markets had to get appropriate medication because they wanted to poison the gay community with AZT. Like it is a fucking genocide that was, that was made by the government to specifically attack minority groups that nobody gave a fuck about because that's what happens when you have a monopoly on power and violence. And that's what happens when you have a monopoly on what medication we can and can't use. So I, I think that's kind of the answer is does your, does your debate have the emotion? Does your debate debate show that you have solutions and some respectability to your position? And can you engage in like the logical kind of like picking a part of what they're doing? And what I find far too often, especially in the econ libertarian space is it's all logos, very little ethos and no, and, and very little pathos. Yeah, I, th I think that's a really good answer. I think it's a very good answer. Um, I think that uh, I fully agree with attacking the methodology, fully agree with attacking like historical examples, like fully agree with giving our own examples, saying, look, this period in history where we had fraternities and lodges, price was very, very reasonable. People got together, they managed to get things on their own very well, and then the state came in and, and, and ruined it. I think also like to really like uh, bring it home, and I think this is a, a very strong advantage on our side, is that we mm -hmm. is that uh, the people that you do, that this, these sort of people that you and I debate, they have just a bunch of pragmat pragmatic studies, and they don't fully understand the principles why these things happen. I think if we say the reason why the the government ruins the principle behind, sorry, of why it will always happen that the government will ruin healthcare is this, and the principle behind why the free market will always do better in healthcare is this. So I think they are missing that side. We need to know mm. what those principles are and just recite it off, offhand in a, in, a, in a debate because the audience 
Like if you throw like study after study for them, they, they, they'll get impressed, but they won't absorb the reason. But if you leave in their head the reason why free markets do better, they will retain that after the debate. Yeah. So one of the things I've been, I've been doing lately is been, is been doing that, right? Is getting some basic principles out. And I think it's been helping me a little bit, which is, you know, explaining marginal propensity to consume, marginal propensity to save, marginal social utility, marginal social costs, price demand equation, um, our theory of what price is, which is the reward for pro proper resource allocation and um, interest due to the, you know, universal time preference for, um, for, um, for a product, for anything, right? A product or a good or service, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then, and, and, and like hitting those principles hard. And because I think like, Putting that 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 simplistic definition of what price is is not really good for your opponent, but it's good for the audience. And okay. and so I, I've been I've been trying to experiment with like what basic economic principles are relevant to the discussion that we're having and and lay out my definitions and why those are important now so that we don't get bogged down in empirical studies where people are making like kind of emotional reasoning based off of, you know, just the, the, what, what seems right, what seems better. Yeah. I, I think also on that emotional side, I think it's very irritating when some sort of like, um, bread tuber like person just, mm -hmm. um, goes, well, you hate poor people well you want them to die. And, and like, there's no nuance and there's no reality. It just seems very like uh, I don't know emotional in a sense, and it's there's and think, there's there's a perfect way to respond to this. So this mm -hmm. is so. Have you studied rhetoric ever, like like classical rhetoric? Probably not. Like read. So reading sophists, reading the sophists, and reading like old old like Greek rhetoric is is really helpful here. So there's a principle called inner Gaia, right? Inner Gaia is a form of pathos. Um, that is, it's also a form of, it's also a soft form of ethos. Um, but basically it just means telling a story, telling a personal narrative, right? So the appropriate response to, you know, let's say healthcare. So let's, if someone comes at me, right. And they say, you don't care about people, um, in our healthcare system and poor people, et cetera. Right. My response should be, let me tell you a story. My great aunt who was, you know, my great, great aunt you know, when my great grandmother died, we didn't have the ability to have stay at home physicians like my great grandmother did. And so we had to put her in a nursing home. And when we put her in a nursing home, you know, um, it was a really good nursing home. We did our research. Everything was good about it. And what eventually happened was she died in the nursing home because they didn't, um, you know, they, they didn't um, turn her over to keep her from getting bed sores and they didn't care that she needed to be spoon fed. And so they let her starve and rot to death with food right in front of her. And we went to the justice system. We went there and we were held up in court for multiple years. Um, our first lawyer was bought out and they never even showed up to the second court proceeding. Um, instead we won a large lawsuit, $16 million dollars. And it also came with a gag order for 10 years where we weren't allowed to go to the media. And what we discovered 
was we never got a penny of that money because those corporations had used bankruptcy proceedings and buried us for years so that they could sell off that company, bankrupt that company, and then do a private auction by another company to buy all of those things, hire people up again, slap a new coat of paint on it, and have all the same equipment bought at private auction and put a new sign on the door. And they're open for business today. The same people that murdered my great aunt because of the monopolistic tendencies, because of the way that the government corrupts these proceedings, the bankruptcy laws, and the lack of justice that 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 exists. And and I do care about poor people because I've fucking lived this. So how dare you say that to me? I've experienced what what state intervention and a monopoly can do in these systems. And that's why I want a freer and better system. So when they attack your emotions, it is the and and or your lack of empathy, that is the perfect time if you if you do have a true narrative, don't lie. But like if you do have a true experience that made you see why these things are fucked. That's when you use that because it, it, it utterly shames and destroys their, their, their accusation. So humanizes the old, you to them? It, to the audience. You'll never the humanize audience? yourself to the, a bad faith debate opponent, right? Um, but the audience is like that whole accusation goes away immediately and, in, in, and you, you've completely sold yourself as someone that's passionate about it because of your personal experiences, even if they think you're wrong. Even if they think that your your approximation of it is wrong, it destroys them and makes them look like an asshole. Makes them look like a bully and a piece of shit. Okay. Um, yeah, that was a pretty powerful story, Scott. It's a true story. I've got quite a few of them. It's fucking why I went from being a socialist to a libertarian. You know, I was dragged kicking and screaming. It wasn't any piece of theory that led me here. <laughs> Cool. But inner Gaia is really powerful and inner Gaia is usually best when it, when it, when it's the end of your, your, um, your, um, your argument. Now there are other forms of inner Gaia. Poetry is a form of inner Gaia. Um, a story, a song. Um, there are other ways. If you don't have a personal experience, there are other things that you can do for inner Gaia, but all inner Gaia really means is putting someone in, in a place emotionally, right? So even if you don't have um, a personal narrative where that like is really strong, like I had for that example, right? Um, someone accuses you of being unloving and, you know, you tell a story about a poem. It sounds weird, but like, when you, if you can do it well, and you have to be a good rhetorician, you have to be someone with charisma to do this, but if you can do it well and you can put someone in a, in a, in a state of feeling, it just destroys those, those accusations. Because what that accusation is, is, is saying what that accusation is really communicating without communicating it is it's saying all of your arguments are logos and you lack pathos. That's what it's really saying is you lack emotion. You lack care. You lack that spark of humanity, that curiosity, that artistic inspiration, whatever that might be. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I can fully appreciate. That. I think, I think, um, also just like having like a sort of narrative-like way of delivering the information a little bit, make it a bit, a little bit more interesting. But like having mm -hmm. a personal, a powerful personal story 
certainly will uh, be, make make it very engaging and uh, more authentic. Yeah, no, I, I think, well, it's just, it's, that's the, I think that's honestly our biggest problem. Maybe it's because I'm not a, maybe it's because I come from like a psych social background, right? Um, and like, and my arguments uh, in terms of economics are not as strong, especially when I go up against somebody like a Kano boy that like can just bury me with words I don't understand. You know what to, I mean? To some to some degree, Connor Boy, bear in mind, he's he's got like two master's degrees and he's coming on the internet debating with people who, who debate e economics and transgender issues and all these like kind of issues of the day. So he, mm -hmm. he's obviously gonna have some advantage over them. Right. But I think I think the the emotions I think that's how you win that. That's how you that's how you win that. Is that like we love to stick to logos. We love to stick to the logic and explain like the methodology, et cetera. But if you do that against somebody like a boy, who's more knowledgeable in that arena, mm -hmm. you kind of, you kind of guarantee yourself a loss. That's interesting. I mean, I, I, when it comes to someone like, uh, let's say T jump where he's just, he'll just rely on, stuff that he gathered say look i got i gathered all this information i don't fully understand economics but from what i gathered uh healthcare is better in uh let's say countries that that have nationalized healthcare and it's objectively mm -hmm. and he'll say something like it's objectively better and everything's better and I'm, I'm not even going to debate the point with you the game is over then then you have a bit more saying in that kind of scenario because it's obviously not objectively better i, I have nationalized healthcare and it's not very good um mm -hmm. With the uh, with the this is, why, this is why I tried to bring up. I was like, okay, it's objectively better than like how come waiting lists are three times longer in this country, right? Um, you know, like I tried to poke holes in all of the bullshit that he was saying because so it's like, yeah, healthcare costs are double in America, but we also have a black book. Those aren't real healthcare costs. So studies are bullshit. It's also like some people choose to spend more on healthcare. And I gave an example of how I chose to spend more on healthcare when, um, when my, my fiance at the time was pregnant with our son, right? Like we shopped hospitals because we, mm -hmm. we were in a more market-based system. We chose to spend more money. We chose to increase. We made the personal choice to increase healthcare costs uh, average in America because we wanted a better experience with more qualified people. Yeah, he he obviously would just be concerned with the average across the population. I think uh, another thing, another insight that I've had is that a lot of socialists and a lot of altruists, they when they argue philosophy or they argue economics, one of the things that they do is they like to do snapshots in time and they don't like to follow that through to conclusion. They don't mm -hmm. like to reiterate what that point means if, if it becomes a norm. And one of the things I, I, I've, I'm, I, I want to learn better is like, how do I explain to the audience what a philosoph what a moral norm means? Because I don't think people actually understand what a moral norm means. Mm -hmm. And so when you say something is a moral norm, they don't, they don't get that. It means that society accepts this as, as, as justified. And thus it becomes like, uh, a regular occurrence in society. And so if you can take their position and show 
I don't know how to do this yet. I, I need to develop a better rhetoric to explain to, to people what a moral norm actually means. So if you justify it once, you need to tell me why it's only justified in this specific sense, yeah. right? And yeah, yeah. not a moral norm. Because if you say that it's justified as a moral norm, that means I get to reiterate it over and over and over again. And so like when people say like, oh, everybody should have a right to a cardiologist and we need like equitable care. Right. And that's why we have a socialist run healthcare system. It's like, okay, well, if that's the norm, then there's one doctor in the world who is the best cardiologist. Does that mean who gets to see the greatest cardiologist in the world? Mm -hmm. Is it the richest people? Well, no. Does it mean that the best cardiologist just happens to live in an, in an area? Does that mean that if the smart people that are better will will move to that area because that that person's better or does that mean that the government needs to engage in the economic calculation problem right and needs to determine what are the most dangerous and unlikely to survive heart patients and this cardiologist needs to have a private jet given to him by the government so that he can fly all across the country to, at, at a moment's notice to give surgeries to the people that are the least likely to survive because he's the best cardiologist Okay. How much money are you willing to spend? Are you willing to destroy the environment with private jets over and over and over again to make sure that we have an equitable uh, distribution of the best cardiologists? Like, okay. What do you mean? Okay. So I, I, I got to, I'll go back to the, to the, to the previous point you made. So I think objectivism to some degree has like a nice answer to that. See if, see if what I'm saying makes sense to what you were, you were asking about. Uh, there's okay. a, there's a line we use called the moral is the practical and the practical is the moral. So the idea is, for example, the reason why we have freedom in the market, that's the moral element, is because it uh, allows people to be very productive and produce as much as possible. Be because the people like to produce, they like to create, and we give them that, that space. That's, that's, we give them that space in the market, and, and so you have the moral principle, and you have, the, you, have, and you have the practical results from that moral principle. So to some degree, there's like a an element or, or it touches reality or there's an element of consequentialism to it. Like it's still a moral principle, but it's like a sprinkle of consequentialism in it. Um, mm -hmm. And I think so, but with moving to the other example you gave with the doctor, to some degree, like even if you uh, have a nationalized healthcare service, you're still rationing healthcare in some way. It's not like a lot of people think, okay, we have free healthcare, then everyone will get the best healthcare mm -hmm. possible for free. And we'll all pay for it. Like, no, the healthcare that you get in a nationalized healthcare service is mediocre or average. And if, if you have a situation, for example, where one person needs a lot of healthcare and a thousand people needs a medium amount of healthcare, you would prioritize the thousand people and not the one person that's very sick. Just because you have a limited number of, of resources and you need to allocate it in, in a certain way. So if someone is very sick, you may not help them at all. You may help them to a point, mm -hmm. but no more than that. Whereas in America, you may get the best healthcare possible. Like if the top 50 hospitals in the world, half of them are in America. Uh, so, you know, it, to some degree, you're still rationing healthcare in, in some way. Now, some people may say that, you know, I want it to be equal on principle. I don't want rich people. I, I dislike rich people. That's my main, my main thing in life. I don't care about the poor. I just actually just dislike rich people. And I don't want them to have better healthcare than anyone else. I don't want them to have better education than anyone else. So they have more advantages in life. I want everyone to be the same. And that's like a moral right. principle I mean, that you can attack. 
Right, but but they'll never admit to that, right? They'll you, you just you have to you have to kind of back on this. You have to ask them a series of questions till they kind of like agree to it. Right. I mean, if you can get them to admit to that, like that's amazing, right? Because resentment is really the the philosophical background of of the of this entire kind of altruistic philosophy, right? It, it's it's not about making the poor better. They just justify it's about making the poor better by claiming that there's like this this pie of, of, of resources. And that if the wealthy are getting more, it, it by definition means that the poor are getting less, um, which is just right. Like, and so you might be able to attack that idea, um, to expose it. I don't know how you get to expose that. If, if it depends on who you're debating against too, like how good they are, um, how well they see those traps coming. The, the thing I, the thing about, I don't like the moral is the practical. The practical is moral, but I do think there's a, an element of truth to it. And I would say that aggression and coercion always has a cost, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not, not just the economic calculation problem, right? But just think about it in chimpanzee troops, right? A chimpanzee troop master, troop leader, right? Can be really violent and aggressive, but if he's too violent and aggressive, right, weaker chimpanzees will gang up on him and beat him to death, and then there'll be a new troop master. Well, the reason is, is because there is a cost to coercion. Okay. And again, when you, when you do it in a slice of time, that cost seems minuscule. But when you reiterate that game over and over and over again, and you, you justify it as a norm, like I said, right, you're constantly incurring that cost that a system without aggression doesn't incur that cost. Right. Yeah, I, and so it, the aggression is, is, is impractical. Once you reiterate that game always, because that cost builds up. You, you can do. So I, I would, I would say this, you can do game theories. And I think that is helpful, especially in a market sense, because I, I can give an example. So let's, Let's say that we, we have a market and, and it's a sort of game theory. Two people interact and they exchange. And the idea, obviously, in an exchange that both people got something from it. They both benefited from it. So there's a net, a net positive from the trade. But if we have some person, let's say, decides to use aggression on the other person, just take it, then one person benefited from the trade and the other person lost from the trade from the, with, with aggression. And if, if the, the theory, if the game theory extends to all of the market, then some people will imitate the aggression. They'll start to gain and the other one will lose. And the whole market will just, just in terms of game theory, the whole market will collapse. And you can say the same thing for fraud as well. Yes. If you have too much fraud in a system, the system will just fail. So, so if you, if you, for example, want as a principle, if a market does not remove coercion and does not remove fraud, it has a it has an incentive for itself to remove those things otherwise it will just fail to work and in just a very basic example let's say you have like a, a website like kind of like ebay and then you go on it you buy something and every second purchase is a is a fraud or a scam soon no one's going to use the website the thing will fail very quickly so right. markets just for their own benefits need to remove that yeah i was i was on twitter earlier and um someone was talking about it's, it's this very interesting thing that I've noticed with, with libertarians 
more so than than like ANCAPs, but even with ANCAPs, um, and because I've gotten into a couple arguments about this, where the libertarians will argue, and these people have like tons of followers, and I'm just like, oh my god, this is like this is child's play. Um, but they'll say, you know, the government like they equate regulation with state control, which is really bad in my opinion. They think that regulation means aggression, that these are the same thing. And one of the questions they were posing was about like, you know, we need some form of regulate, like I'm a libertarian and I don't want aggression, but like, we don't, how are we going to stop meth labs? How are we going to stop? Like, you know, like we need pilots license. We need these things. Mm -hmm. So we need some form of like control in these regards. And it's like the, the classic menarchist libertarian idea, right? Mm -hmm. Where you haven't really gone through it. And so I kind of broke it down. I was like, they were like, what about, so I took the meth lab example, the blowing up next to your house. And I was like, okay, imagine you're in a truly free market and nationwide insurance is, is, is your neighbor's rights enforcement agency, right? And you go to work and your wife and your kids and your dog all get blown up from the meth lab next door. And so they were representing them and they were co-signing, um, you know, they're co-signing everything for them. So you sue them. You go to take them to arbitration. Like, hey, man, like this person committed an act of aggression towards me and blew up my wife and my kids and my house and my dog, right? And I win like $50 million, right? Because how do you even put a price tag on those things? $50 million and that person ends up in, in some sort of jail or something, right? Well, Nationwide doesn't want this. They're like, holy shit, now I have to, now I have to, oh, finally a use for the arbitrate emote. Um, now I have to, as Nationwide, I have to increase everyone's insurance premiums because of this ridiculous answer. So how can I solve this problem as an insurance company? Well, I'm going to increase everyone's insurance premiums, but I'm going to offer a program that will reduce your insurance premiums by like $100 a month if you allow me to come to your home once a year to do um to do like home inspections it's per perfectly voluntary you don't have to do it but i'm gonna charge you way less money to insure your home and your property and like and what's going on there and if i know that there aren't termites at your property that there aren't that there's no meth lab there right etc cetera, etc cetera. so this program gets gets cause where if you want cheaper insurance you don't do wild shit and you voluntarily let people in your home. And then certain neighborhoods that are constructed by construction companies spring up. And those neighborhoods go, we'll sell you a house, but on the deed, ownership of the title goes back to us and you'll be evicted if you don't have an insurance company that has, a, let's say, a yearly inspection. So now okay. the whole neighborhood has this. And then you voluntarily spend a little bit more money on this, on this, on this, because you want this service because you want to make sure that everyone in the neighborhood isn't cooking a fucking meth lab, right? Like isn't doing wild shit. And so you voluntarily choose to pay a little bit money, more money on a house. The construction company gets to build a nice neighborhood and low and you get lower insurance rates and th those prices balance out. Lo and behold, the market is voluntarily self-regulated. And, and so this is a thing that like when we talk about econ and regulation and government regulation is I think it's another example of how we don't put forward positive prescriptions and explain the way that the market actually regulates in such a way that doesn't incur the cost of aggression that comes from the state. Yeah, I, I, uh, 
So I read the tweet. I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with the whole MATLAB example. I appreciate, I appreciate uh, you set it up very well. But in, in general, uh, yes, business insurance, they can affect the behavior of companies in the market of companies once. And I also had a, a podcast, like a, a talk about this with Robin, with, the, with Lucas Robin, the state, uh, about mm-hmm. uh, how business insurance can affect market behavior. In effect, there is no such thing as unregulated markets. It's just, is it state-regulated or self-regulated? And, and here you can, yes. inj- you can inject a principle where you say, well, look, the market can react very, very quickly to changes that it needs to, to solve. Whereas the government, you know, they'll take two months just to schedule a, meet- a meeting between a few people to then spend money on something. So the market can re- react very quickly to something and make something safer. I think... A problem, a problem sometimes is that uh, people don't have any patience to wait for the market to do this. So, for example, part of the reason why the FDA was formed in something was because some guy was experimenting with radiation and one guy got, uh, got hurt from it, therefore we need the FDA. I said, look, it, it happened one time and, and it's not like the, the government can act faster than that. Like, they didn't know to regulate it before it happened themselves. But in general, like, a market will react quicker to changes in the market or companies in, in a market or many companies in a market will react quicker than a, a centralized, highly, highly authoritative bureaucracy uh, I don't, to, to I do don't necessarily agree with that, actually. I think, I think in some instances, the government absolutely reacts quicker than the market. Which uh, instances? Well, like, let's look at like, um, so, so I, I'll, I'll give an example, right? Um, which is NASA, right? It reacts quicker than the market because the market didn't determine a need for it, but the government did, right? Central planners wanted something that wasn't necessarily what the people in the nation wanted, right? It wasn't what people wanted to do with their money, but because they have stolen money, they can do things that aren't necessarily like the problem is is thought of more as a problem than it actually is a problem and in those instances the government can react quicker than let's say spacex i think spacex probably would have come along eventually um and would have done things more efficiently than the state would have but the state can steal money so it can solve it can cause more problems by solving a presumed problem by just throwing money at it in a way that the market wouldn't necessarily do because the market hasn't determined and the and by the market I mean the people haven't actually determined that that is something that they value compared to the financial cost or burden of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean I, I can see what you're saying. I I think that to some degree even with the Wright brothers there was always a desire to fly or fly higher than the atmosphere and see what's outside the earth. Certainly, if you had one of the richest people, uh, like in America, the, or several of the richest people in America said, I'm really interested in space at the start of the 20th century. I'm really interested in space and I want to invest money to see how high I can, I can fly and then go into that vehicle and just for my own benefit, then maybe we would have seen some more uh, investment in this. I accept. Yeah, I mean, we I, also can't compare. We can't compare. We can only like we can only use like Austrian methods here, mm-hmm. because like what what we can't compare is maybe I'm wrong, 
maybe the market would have responded faster um, it, it, without that taxation because people would have had more wealth, more GDP, more economic trans, more economic transactions, disposable income, they would have space. more, right, right. Exactly. They would have had more disposable income, but I would still think looking at human action, that there are things that aren't actually problems that mm-hmm. the state determines to be a problem. And in those instances, it makes sense to me, like looking at it proxiologically, right? That if the market doesn't see a problem, but central planners do, mm-hmm. then, or central planners value that problem at a higher order value than the market and the people do, then it makes sense to me that the government is able to solve that problem um, quicker than the market because their values are ordered differently. So well, they'll, they have no problem stealing more money and throwing and wasting money to, to solve this issue in a way that I don't think the market would because the market is, is dependent upon profit. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think I see too much issue with, with that point. Like if, if the government sees something, a problem that the market does not necessarily see, um, then they can throw more money at it and it will be solved faster. I mean, I, to some degree, like in, in my, in my world, we would still have an army. And if an army sees a need to have, let's give an example, sees a need to have drones, uh, 50 years before the, the, they are in the, the free markets or the, or the, or the, or the markets. Um, then those drones will be developed faster for the the needs of the army. And then if, let's say, the markets then says, oh, this could be applied to kids playing with drones because it's cool, and they take some of that, some of those ideas and they implement some, to me, that that's fine because the army needed mm-hmm. it, they invested in it, it helped them. And then if someone else, like, on the back of that saw an application for the market, that that's okay. Yeah, I mean, here's here's where we split it off, you know, as but an not, not too much, right? Scott. Let's, let's just... Let's just keep it, you know, keep it civil. We're together. We're on the same well, side. No, Scott, no, no, no. I'm I... not coming. I'm not coming at you. I'm not coming at you. I just mean to say that, like, there's also the inverse of that, sure. which is that even though the military would not have, even though the military, like an, an anarchist, let's say, you know, merc- uh, anarcho-capitalist, like mercenary company might mm-hmm. not see that need as quickly as a government central planner. But because they're not stealing wealth for the maintenance of the army, there's more innovation in other places, which might mean more trade, more peace, or more innovations in places that surprise us, right? So I do think that the market is actually superior here because it doesn't waste those things, those resources um, in that way. Yeah, I mean, I think... I mean, guns were made in the market, weren't they? It wasn't, wasn't made by the arm, wasn't invented by the army, was it? Um, I mean, Colt, I guess, Colt, I mean, Colt. I guess the principle between guns started with Chinese fireworks. Right. But who made handguns? Sorry. Europeans. I'm pretty sure made the first one. Who made the, who made the Colt something, something. The Colt 45. Yeah. Peacekeeper. I don't know. Just, just like I, I was under the impression that the market made firearms and then the army bought them from, or, or, or asked for like loud. It's always been that way. Yeah, so it's always been that way. Yeah, but I mean, some of those companies, obviously, like Sierra Industries, or you know, is the only one I can think of right now. But like, some of those companies basically exist off of the government team today. Maybe 
What's that? Today, I'm sure a lot of things exist off the government entirely. Yeah, right. <laughs> but you said, but is there a pivot that you wanted to go to in terms of discussing economics to get away from this this principle here? I mean, I'd like to discuss uh, two principles with you. I mean, the, the big one is cost disease socialism, and the other one is director's law. Mm. Can you can you refresh me on um, cost disease as a principle, and then? You're the idea of cost disease socialism. Sure. Um, cost disease from maybe I can remember it off the top of my head because um, it's not something I talk about often. But cost disease, from what I understand, is one one individual within a market or within within an industry, um, their labor becomes more productive, um, but other other labor does not become more productive. And so, because this one form of of labor becomes more productive, um, they get paid more because of the increase in productivity. But that there is kind of a demand from the market for those other areas where um, individuals uh, have not seen an increase in their productivity and labor. But because of the relative income differences to other people working in the industry, they kind of demand more money. And so, you kind of have like a redistribution economically from more productive areas of the more productive sectors of the economy or industries towards less productive sectors or industries. Yeah, I think you got like like ninety five percent of that. So basically, Bommel. Okay, cool. Uh, I'm glad I remembered because it's been a while since I've thought no, about no, cost it was, disease. Was pretty good. Uh, it's specifically around uh, labor intensive parts of the economy and and labor intensive intensive parts of the economy that that don't seem to automate or. Uh, gain some productivity with machinery. They they they're, they're dependent on labor at this point in time or the foreseeable future. So uh, the idea is, like you said, that um, they're not very product. They don't improve the productivity. They're still doing like the same degree of labor that they've always done. But because everyone else is in the in the in the market has improved the productivity and has increased their wages because of the like when when you decide to go into a particular profession, um, you can either choose this or choose that. So because everyone else wages have increased, and the people who are even though the productivity has hasn't increased, will get increasing wages because of the result of everyone else. Mm. And the example, yeah, that I think we gives, see this with we see this. I think a, a great example in healthcare is nursing, right? Like nursing's productivity hasn't really increased that much. Sure. But when you look at like X-ray technicians, or you know other like kind of specialized or, you know, respiratory therapists, other people that are beginning to utilize machines that are providing really valuable things. Um, and their expertise in this specific area is like an, is a really, is, is, is really productive labor. Whereas nurses are still kind of just doing the same job they've done, you know, with some increases in technology, et cetera. But for the most part, they're checking in on patients, checking charts, you know, making sure their, you know, their drugs are, you know, being administered properly. It's kind of the same job it was 50 years ago with, with slight increases in, in other areas. Sure. So, yeah, I think, I think that's a good example. I mean, Bommel himself gives the example of uh, a four-string quartet where he says uh, these people will play. Will, if you want to see these people, you, you always have to hire them. There's nothing you can do. And, and, and if, if everyone else in the economy uh, has more wages, then their wages have to increase as well. But the problem is in the, with this example is that we have, you know, we can record audio, we can play to ourselves, we don't have to pay a string quartet to see the, the music. So there is, so in, in some degree, a lot of people criticized 
this uh, theory because you can get some improvements or, or let's say let's take teachers teachers for right now is a la- is a labor intensive uh profession the only thing that we've done is we've just packed more kids in one room so that we could like make use mm. that that's the uh, productivity improvement we have not used youtube we have not used apps we have not used a lot of the things the internet gives you e- even in combination with teachers we have not used any well, of the we are using things. that now unfortunately but it's the woke that have taken over those things social emotional learning and things like that they're they're using it not necessarily for an increase in the productivity of teaching but for the increase in the productivity of indoctrination they now use um they now give kids these like little aptitude tests and like and so that they can aggregate who are the students that are not woke enough so that they can focus uh, specifically on those students as a means of indoctrinating them into the ideology um, under the name of social emotional learning. But funnily enough, you know, if, 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 if teaching as a profession wasn't so fucking woke, we could be utilizing those technologies, for example, um, to, to find out like objective, you know, technological metrics to determine like what kids need more specific um, targeted education in Mm. arithmetic versus reading and writing or other things like that. So we could be using those things appropriately and increasing the productivity of their labor, but we're not because the indoctrination is more important. Sure. Um, no comment. Uh, we could be using things like, you know, (laughs) like uh, AI, AI chatbots that help people like learn a bit better and stuff like that. We have like to some degree in America, there's like a, a homeschooling movement that does use some of these uh, online stuff in addition to the homeschooling that they do. And but 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 kind of like, let's go back to the to to adding the socialism at the end of cost disease. So the so mm-hmm. the addition of socialism to to now make cost disease socialism is a, is a term made by the Niskanen Niskazian Center, which is a left. Hold on. So if I was to guess. What you're yeah. saying is instead of allowing the market to get rid of jobs that are less productive and have an increase in their productivity for kind of like um, uh, creative destruction, socialism steps in and you see an increase in the demand for redistribution because different sectors of the economy become more productive while others don't? The idea, uh, close. Basically, the idea is the government then steps in either because people people want more of this. Sorry, this labor-intensive part of the economy becomes more and more expensive, mm-hmm. uh, or or it reaches a point where people want the government to step in. Once the government steps in, it restricts supply and dis- res- restricts supply and and then diffuses the cost. So, let's say nurses. Uh, now have to have a very like a very serious degree or they have to go through a particular ama kind of process where the, the number is restricted so there's less of them the costs go up and the costs are then either the government just pays for everything as a sort of nationalized service or in the case of education they give they allow people to take out very very large loans but it it removes the market mechanism of of prices so the, the market mechanism has gone away and the government restricts it for a variety of different reasons like healthcare and, and FDA regulations and all that. It just yeah. happens to restrict it. So when we were looking at the debate, um, was it last night or the night before last with Shane Hazel? Last night. 
I don't know, man. As a Twitch streamer, the days just blend together. But we were looking at that debate. Oh, last night was the panel. Um, Thursday. Yeah, it was Thursday. Okay, so we were looking at Shane Hazel debating um, Stacey Abrams and Kemp, right? Stacey Abrams was like, teachers need more money. That's why we need $11,000 salary increase. And Kemp was like, calm down. What we really need is what I advocated for and what I passed, which is, you know, $5,000 incrementally over time. And it's like, obviously, it's not quite perfect because, you know, it's already government run. But like, it is this kind of thing where teaching is becoming less productive and they're just demanding more resources despite a, a lack of the increase in productivity because the market isn't able to respond in such a way that would, you know, utilize new technologies towards this education system. Yeah. With education, I think there's a lot of, a lot of people that just uh, on the left in particular, that just say, look, that, um, if you give it more money, it will be, it will be better. Why? Because rich people pay more money and we want rich, the same results that rich people get in private schools to be in like inner city public schools. And you know, some of the inner city public schools in let's say New York are like close to 30,000 per child per year. So I don't mm -hmm. necessarily think that throwing money at, I actually am quite sure that throwing money at the problem would solve it. Or even if you're in a debate and they say we need more money, then just say, look, okay, let's say, take a school, double the money. I, let's pretend I have a magic wand. I double the money per, per student. What would you do with that money? Smaller classrooms, great. That's pretty much, that's pretty much it. Like if, if, if a facility is broken down and, and like the whole thing is like leak, leaking from the roof, then fine. Then there's something to do with the money. But if all that is like fixed and, and like, like average, then doubling the money won't, won't be like such a big deal. There's, there are other factors uh, like discipline or like parental uh, help with the kids that, that yeah. is missing so here. This but is, this is again where I think we get bogged down in logos. Right. Okay. Um, you know, this is where, this is where I often tell the story of, um, the, um, the charity organization where fathers go into schools where mm -hmm. they've seen drastic improvements in quality of education in uh, reduction in, in violence in schools by just having fathers in the classroom. And it was Familiar. kind of funny because I brought this up on a prime guys panel and everyone just dismissed it as hilarious, despite the evidence being there. Um, that it, that it helps because, you know, it is, it is a multifaceted issue. Um, and yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I just wanted to point that out. I'm, I apologize for interrupting. It just, I didn't want to forget it. No, it's, it's fine. I mean, you, to some degree, like maybe you can say the same if you, I'm not, in, I'm, totally, I'm not entirely sure about the following statement, but for argument's sake, let's say if you double the police spend, will you get double, will you get much, much better protection? To some degree, you'll get better protection. Mm. I don't know if it's double the protection. I, I'm not, not really sure if that's necessarily the, the case, but there may be other factors. However, back to the cause this is socialism, the idea of that principle is that opposed, the opposite of the free market, where things over time, innovations, improvements in productivity, the price of things goes down and the value of things go up. Let's take a TV from 40 years ago versus a TV today. Mm -hmm. But in the case of things that the government gets involved in, like healthcare, housing, childcare, uh, higher education, those things increase the price over time. They grow, they, over like 20 years, they could be like 200, 100% more uh, 
more expensive, whereas inflation is like 60 something, 70, 70 max in the, in the, in the best case. So things that are left to the government because of this principle of cost disease socialism will always increase the price over time. And things that's left to the market will always uh, reduce in price over time. To some degree, the innovations from the free market, the improvements in productivity are a, a deflationary uh, effect on the market. So if you take like the CPI basket and how inflation is calculated, if, the pri- if, if a TV is part of the CPI basket and it goes in, down in price over time, then it has a deflationary effect. Yeah. I mean, like there are certain, you can see this in like, there's, I've seen graphs, right. Where like they iterate different, like, um, goods and services in the market. And you see like, um, you know, the cost of, of things, um, like TVs going down, electronics going down, um, you know, certain, you know, automobiles kind of like going down, but slightly. And it's like, oh, wow. All of the things that the government is involved in, the prices just keep increasing and increasing. Um, like relative to, to, to other things. Mm -hmm. Um, what is, what is interesting though, is that it seems to have like the exact opposite effect of creative destruction. Like it seems to disincentivize creative destruction. Absolutely. Because if you're, if, if you're going to pay and you're going to have the government step in to kind of save this Luddite fucking, you know, low, low, um, sorry, low, um, or high cost labor, right. Mm-hmm. Um, then you're, then you're going to reduce the innovation in the market. Um, you know, it, it, there's this weird thing. I remember Tucker Carlson did this interview. Um, maybe it was like with Ben Shapiro or something. It was years ago. And he was asked about, um, whether or not he would step in to stop, you know, automation from getting automated vehicles from taking away truck drivers jobs. Mm-hmm. And he was like, absolutely. I would. Yeah, like we have to stop this. This is like 40% of like fucking like, you know, high wage blue collar work in America is truck drivers. So like, you know, what are we going to do with all those people that don't have jobs? Like we can't just tell them to code. So like, yes, I will step in to stop that. But it's like when you're maintaining those jobs, you're also maintaining high prices, right? Like you're also maintaining high costs throughout the economy, especially when you talk to truck driving to like literally every good in America, like Mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're in order to save a certain amount of jobs and to like have a sense of meaning and purpose for these people, you're also going to make all of the poor's lives more expensive. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, it doesn't make any sense. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You make products more expensive and, and typically like when an area of the economy is automated or just for arguments like made very, very cheap to get stuff across. So let, let's say, let's take the, have you heard of the, uh, the new thing with an AI that makes pictures for you? If you just tell it like a string of words, it like yeah. makes a picture. So just imagine. We had say, it in the server for a minute and then fucking Lucas got rid of it. And I was like, fuck you. And I haven't gotten it back. Okay, so let, let's say, for example, this uh, has an effect on, on artists, uh, like the, the amount of money they can obtain from, from mm-hmm. contracts. But on the other hand, every person who wanted to do something creative, who wanted something for their website, who wanted something for their branding, who just likes, who just like spiritually likes to watch these pictures, it gives them a good feeling to see art and they like to play with it. Now it's free or like close to free. 
And and like mm-hmm. it just, these sorts of things create more jobs as a result of this being very very inexpensive. Uh, then the more the more jobs are created afterwards. So for example, the the classic example in uh, in Henry Hazlitt is the uh, the Luddites and the sewing machines. That in in France the Luddites wanted to uh, like not allow sewing machines, and the and the French government got involved. They they stopped them from uh, they quite violent. I think the the Luddites. They stopped them from doing that. And then like 20 years later, or 26 years later, they came back to the garment industry and saw how many people are working it. It was something like, like 44 times more people than there were before after sewing machines were, were introduced. So, yeah. So the, the example that I like to give, and it's, it's less about like, it's, it's, it's not as good of an example in terms of like showing how government attempted to step in, but it is a better example because I think people remember it and people value the current product. So the example I usually use is Blockbuster versus Netflix, mm-hmm. right? That like Netflix came into the market and at first Netflix was terrible, right? Like Netflix was you paid $15 a month and in your mailbox, you would get DVDs shipped to you and it would be based off of availability. So you'd never get the fucking DVD you really wanted. You'd get the ones like lower on your list. And sometimes they'd be scratched and fucked up or it'd be the wrong DVD, but it was a, it was an innovative idea. And it, they made it better and they made Redbox, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then as they used those profits, they created Netflix.com. And Netflix.com essentially destroyed Blockbuster and home video stores. And people were like lamenting the idea that their local video stores destroyed, that these jobs were destroyed. But it's like, what are you talking about? Everyone has access to entertainment, documentaries, comedy shows, etc. for like... Eight ninety nine a month in their home. Now, obviously, yeah. it's getting worse because so many other people are getting into the market. They have less of a not monopsony on the market that'll have to balance out, etc. But it's like, you know, why would you destroy Netflix to maintain Blockbuster other than like this weird nostalgia? It's not better for the economy. It's not better for people. It's not better for entertainment. It's not what people want. Yeah. So Netflix is a good example of the opposite of cost is socialism like more people have access to watching movies in, in the comfort of their home they don't have to catch a bus as a teenager to blockbusters with a bunch of friends who want to get like pizzas and watch a movie and they bring it home they watch the movie they forget to bring it back to blockbuster that they pay the fee or they forget to rewind the right. cassette all that is gone now i don't know if anyone remembers this but all that is gone now and uh and yeah, we have a much more convenient. It's so so con, so common now that we call it Netflix and chill. But if it was like a, right. if it was up to the government, like the sorry, the example, the example that I like for ex- why there's no innovation is because they they don't need to. Like if if a company invents a, a healthcare company invents a me- medicine, that medicine costs five hundred dollar a pill, and the government says I'm going to pay it now, and I'm going to pay five hundred dollars in five years time from now for the exact same pill. There's no incentive to make a second pill or there's no incentive for another company to come in and say, I'm going to invent like a slightly better pill or something. There's no market mechanism to push, to encourage innovation or push down on, or push down on price because you'll just get the price you want. That's kind of, mm-hmm. that's kind of the problem. The problem. You, you make it like small innovations over time and to some degree like America has uh, the pharmaceutical industry that the rest of the world, especially the nationalized healthcare services in other parts of the world, depend on innovations from and basically holding everyone else else's like 
uh, healthcare system up. Like if if the US didn't do like I think the US does seventy five percent of all new new uh, med- medical. Last time I checked, it was fifty seven, not sure. seventy five. So, but I mean that's still, still high, yeah. a majority for the entire of the entirety of the world, and that number is <laughs> a little bit overblown um, because Germany does a lot. Um, but often we will I think purchase Germany, the IP. We'll purchase I think, the IP from Germany because it, it's easier to get approved here in America than it is in Germany. So I, some of that is 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 state based in terms that like Germans do a majority of the work, and then a, a American pharmaceutical company will buy all of their research and then get it approved in America. And then once it's FDA approved and like labeled and everything in America, then, then, then it can get approved in other European countries where it's more stringent. I think to some degree, Germany manufactures a lot of the pills. I, I know it does some research, but the manufacturing is certainly stronger than the research. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's take, let's take, for example, Norway. Norway is the country with 5 million people. There's no way that it can make all the medicine and medical machinery, all, all that stuff. It, it just, it can't invent these things on its own. It's dependent on larger countries that, that, that do this research and do this innovation. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't, oh, we agree so much that I, that I'm, I'm trying to figure out like what I would pick your brain on, but, um, no, we, is there we, anything else strategy. you wanted to talk about? We're just talking strategy. Yeah, is there, no, no, for sure. For sure. I'm trying to, I'm just trying to think like, is there another thing that you think is, like a roadblock when debating socialists, um, altruists, uh, yeah, anti-free is, market people. That there is one. So I, I mentioned I mentioned the rationing in the healthcare system, which is which is useful to to add the nuance that that it's not like when people say free healthcare, it's not like everyone gets amazing healthcare. It's still rationed in some sense. It's just done by a committee. Uh, and the mm-hmm. other one is uh, director's law, which is the R- Milton Friedman's Robin Hood myth. Are you familiar with this law? It's a principle. Uh, not, no. So Milton Friedman had a, had a wife who was also a very good economist. She had a, a brother. So Milton Friedman's brother-in-law came up with something called director's law. And basically that says that empirically, this is not a principle. This is just an empirical fact. Uh, countries would spend more money on welfare to the middle class than they do on the poor on the poor and the rich so the the rich and the poor it turns out that the rich and the poor will kind of like fund the middle class in terms of welfare and entitlements so if you look for example at the u.s uh system but the but the poor's marginal propensity to consume tends to be higher than the middle class i don't understand uh when just talk about welfare just about government spend okay so, for example, let's say if you look at the, uh, the budget for the U.S., a large sex- portion of that is uh, Medicare and Social Security. And mm-hmm. to some degree, like the, that's spent on... So Medicare is for elderly, I believe, if I got that correctly. So that's spent on, yeah. on the elderly. And the elderly people with disabilities, but... Sure. That's Medicaid, right? Well, that's for poor people. Medicare and Medicaid is, is, is really fucking complicated and handled differently by different states. And then there's Medicare, uh, Medicare part A, B, C, and D and like D is supplemental. I, 
I don't want to so, get too deep in the weeds on that. Let's just let's just say the the healthcare we give the elderly and the social security we give the elderly. That's the large section of the budget every year, and the mm-hmm. elderly are considered middle class. Like uh, if you put them as a group, they have typically have a house that they mostly paid for, if not completely paid for. They have savings. They have their own pensions. They have because they paid for the house. They have very little expenses. Uh, they're also the happiest group because they now get to travel the world on cruises and whatnot. And um, yes, there is an element where a, a fraction of them are, are struggling and because they're elderly, they are unable to work and th- those particular people need help. But as a, as a group, they're middle class. So the vast majority of, uh, like most of the money in welfare entitlements will, be, will go towards the middle class. And the assumption is, or at least in my understanding, that because the middle class is a, is a large voting block, then they would allocate, or they would kind of like allocate uh, a lot of those to themselves. So for example, if you say take away means testing, that by default means the middle class would benefit from that. I would be interested to look at data on that because it's it goes literally against wiki. what I think is true, but literally I want to I I look into it. Literally a wiki article. Directed yeah, I mean, like, I want to I look, look at data in that because I don't, it doesn't seem true from what I understand, but like, I don't, but again, like I said, economics isn't my biggest strong suit as a, as a, as a libertarian, um, because from what I've seen, the, the, so you're saying like relative to the, to the size, are you saying that like the middle class is a larger group of people than the poor? And therefore, because they're a larger group of people than the poor, they still get welfare. And so when you're actually, you're instead of looking at it from marginal propensity to consume based Mm -hmm. off their relative income and how much welfare they get, there's all of these entitlement spending that goes to the middle class, regardless of how much money they're making, et cetera. And because of that, this group actually benefits more because of the size of the group than let's say the poor. Is that the uh, argument? Yeah, that. Uh, okay, that that could I could see that that makes sense. The problem is, is that what happens when the middle class shrinks and just becomes the poor? To some degree, the middle class is like a is like a bell curve. The middle class will always be like the the rich will always be like the the group at one end. The poor will always be the group at the other end, and the bell curve will have the the, the most in the middle. Even if you move, even if the curve like kind of like <sighs> moves, then it still be it will still be a bell curve. Okay, but 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 that's kind of a distinction without a difference. If let's say the Gini coefficient multiplies by like levels of three, right? I'm talking and about population. The market, just like numbers yeah, of people. I, yeah, yeah, no, I get that. But what I'm saying is, it's a distinction without a difference. If like the average middle class person is let's say making fifty thousand dollars a year, mm-hmm. and the average poor person is making thirty thousand dollars a year, mm-hmm. and the average wealthy person is making two million dollars a year, right? Like, like at a certain point, sure, the middle class represents the center of the distribution, but is there really a, like a substantive difference between them if wealth isolates at one end of the spectrum and costs don't change because of, you know, many principles, like one of them being, you know, um, uh, cost disease socialism, right? Like if, if they're kind of all in the same block and there's not much economic difference between the two of them, then, then what is even poor in the middle class, right? 
If so we I, follow Cosnet's curve, mm-hmm. right, and we see increasing Gini coefficient, but the market doesn't respond to that because of socialist socialistic intervention, then then there really is no difference between the poor and the middle class. To some to some degree, like well, depends on how you look at the numbers. So let's say if you're looking at income, mm-hmm. there are, there is a distribution that will give uh, to people who are lower income, and the people who are in the bottom quintile, so the bottom 20%, will have, will on average, have like 48,000 after um, federal transfers and bonuses and, and, and salary and all that factored in. The quintile above them would have 55 after federal transfer. And the middle 20, this is like the, the middle, that they would have uh, had 66, but they have 61 after taxes. So you can see like the bottom three on average, they'll, they're relatively even out. And then the top ones, obviously the, the top 20% of they consume half of what they own. The other half is federal transfers. But my point specifically is that if you, if you take the uh, elderly, the elderly from an income point of view, they're not working at all. The income is zero. So, they, okay. so they, they've paid, they've paid all their life into, into a, let's say, let, I'm a, I'm a little like confused with social security in a sense because we have pension system and we don't have this like mix of welfare and entitlements. A pension is a pension. Like you put money in a pension, you you put like three percent throughout your your life, and your employer puts another three percent, and then at the end you get to use that money after it grew while being in the in the markets with the pension company. So that is kind yeah, of. Stu- I mean- we have those as well, but it's kind of dying because of how often people switch jobs now. Okay. Oh, it's dependent on the, so it's private to us. It's not dependent on the company. Yeah. So like we have 401ks and things like that. And a lot of businesses will offer like transfers and matching of 401ks, but it's kind of like the same way with health insurance. It's usually, um, it's usually job dependent. Okay. So we, we would have a pension. We would stop working. We'll become full capitalists because we have, uh, we're not working anymore and we're living off our, our capital now that we've saved all our lives. So we're now proper capitalists by the, by the Marxist definition, which is cool. Uh, and then, but from a point of view, if you look at it on the, on the graph, our income is zero. Or it, could mm-hmm. be like, or, or it could be like very low. Let's say if you factor in the pension itself, it's like $1,000 the month, $1,500. It's, it's still very low. We just don't have, as a, as a retired person, you don't have any payments to your house it's paid off and you can start saving money like even though you're not making a a high income through your pension but if if you don't factor the pension in at all because it's like a sort of asset then you're making zero income and and you pop up on the distribution at the bottom you're you're the poorest quintile because you're not working okay but i'm i'm still i'm still trying to understand how so i'm let's take a hypothetical Right. Right. Like let's let, I mean, I understand that this is a, this is a tendency, right? This is an empirical fact, not necessarily a principle. And that's kind of what I'm getting at is that like, if, if we take our current hypothetical, right. And the WEF types and shit like that, they get their wishes. Everyone Uh eats the bugs, right. They get massive socialist control of the state while still calling it, you know, capitalist, even though it's not, um, and you know, the bottom three quintiles all have very 
slight differences in their income, mm-hmm. right? After a certain point, right, it, it no longer it no longer matters, you know, when welfare occurs. Um, like th- this principle wouldn't wouldn't make a difference because as they as they shrink together, their marginal propensity to consume gets closer and closer, right? Where, you know, whereas the middle class used to be this burgeoning, wonderful middle class, and they have all of this extra income and they're getting welfare, like the, the, the middle class ends up with like a marginal propensity to consume of like 0.95. And then like the bottom quintile is like, you know, 1.1 still, right? Like after a certain point, I don't think that it, that it matters that the middle class, you, you see what I'm saying? Like, like it, it tends to lose its effect in terms of like the voting block of the middle class utilizing their prep, their power in such a way. Um, I think, I think the confusing bit here is that we're using income and ignoring wealth. So, mm-hmm. so let's say, let, let's for argument say, let's say they have no wealth, right? Like, like we're sure. all in our little pods and nobody owns fucking homes except the rich. Well, let's, let's look at it like this. Let's say I'm, I'm saying that, the elderly are middle class. They are part of the middle class and they're mm-hmm. a very large, large group. But on the income distribution, they're in the bottom quintile. But from the wealth mm-hmm. distribution, as a group, they're, they're the most, they're the, the group with the most wealth. They'll, they'll just default mm. to the group with the most wealth. They'll have, if you factor in their pension, their assets, their houses that are paid off, they'll, they will be likely in the top 20% of wealth. Okay. So, and they'll get like, you know, dividends from their wealth. So, and they'll get like payments from their pension and they'll get like, you know, benefits for owning a house. So if, for example, the house prices go up, so let's say you're an elderly person and you're renting and the rent has recently doubled with inflation or like it was, it, it was like, uh, creeping up, creeping up, creeping up. And then like the owners of the house say, look, it's, it's now this apartment in the city that I'm renting out to this elderly person. I can get twice as much. As I'm, as I'm currently charging them, so I'll kick them out, they'll become homeless, and I'll double the, I'll double the rent. But if you, owned a, you owned your own home, you're protected from that kind of market fluctuation, especially if like, the government printed a lot of money. So all these things help this group of people. But these group of people, mm-hmm. the, w- the way I'm saying it is they are middle class as a group, and they are a group that always votes very effectively. They consistently vote very much if you notice politicians right. tend to uh support this group very much because and to some degree if they don't support it and let's say some of those fall to to poverty then the government will have to spend maybe even more in, in other ways okay so the, so the argument is is that it's it's really just looking at looking at the reality that we currently are in it's just and different the numbers, reality yeah. that we're currently yeah. yeah the reality that we're currently in is that the the demographic with the most wealth is the elderly and they have, they're a large and and consistent voting block that have that, that vote with a very, with a very high time preference, right? Because they're elderly, they're going to die soon and they want to be taken care of themselves and they want all of these entitlement spendings, which are really a majority of the national debt. Right. Mm-hmm. I think it's something like our spending is like something like 82, 83% now um, entitlements, some of which yeah. is, is debt. 
but I mean, it's, it's, we bicker over like the defense budget or like what new tax plan and all these things. And we're all bickering over like 15% of the budget because the overwhelming majority of the budget is this golden kind of goose that we can't touch or we'll lose all the votes from this elderly demographic that demands social security, that demands Medicare and Medicaid, that disproportionately actually doesn't go towards impoverished people or, you know, minority communities or, you know, low socioeconomic status neighborhoods or whatever, however you want to say it or whatever it is, but instead goes towards a voting block that already has the most wealth, Mm -hmm. but is demanding kind of increased things for themselves kind of at the expense of everybody else. Yeah. And and I, there's two ways of, of looking at it as well. Um, by the way, the, the high time preference comment was something I, I didn't think of, and I, and, and I agree completely with, with what you're saying, because they, they do have a high time preference. Um, so the, the thing is, when, when you argue with progressives or socialists about it, they'll say, look, the rich people can't own money, and if, and if you remove uh, Social Security, then 37% of them will, will become poor. Like, look, if you remove my pension, I'll become poor as well. So to some degree, like I, mm-hmm. I put money into my pension, and it's it sh- it's like a, it's like an entitlement. I fo- I I un involuntarily un- put money into it in social security, but but you could say that five to seven percent of people, uh, elderly people, do need help, just not just not ninety five to ninety three. They they'll well, they you could can't, have had their own savings. You can't take away social security. Yeah. Um, because you've already stolen that money yeah. and made it impossible for those people to invest that money in, in like, you know, the stock market or, you know, in like a hedge fund or in like a 401k or simply even just in a, you know, in their own business to grow their own wealth or in their house. home so yeah. that they could own their own home, etc. But I mean, like, so I, I don't think that it's an intelligent thing to to suggest that. I do think what our politicians need to do is simply cut it off. Like if you're at this age, you'll continue to pay into social security. Right. Um, and we'll continue to maintain your social security, but people that are turning 18 right now, we're not going to take social security tax from you. Um, but we're, you're also not never going to see social security. Like, I mean, like yeah. that's the only really appropriate way to do it, is to stop the theft, um, from people, from everyone or at the very least people who haven't already done it. Like, so, I mean, like if I was going to argue like kind of an incrementalist policy, I would say everyone turning 18 today, you will not get social security taxes. Um, but you'll also not get social security benefits. And as elderly die off, we have less payments, but we also have less money coming in. Yeah. I think um, I'm not exactly sure how you would move into it. Either you can just say, this is your money here, put it in your own private pension or something like that. But I think I think to some degree, the eighteen-year-olds of today may not get social security because it will just pop by the time they reach it. Or I'm if I was in America, I wouldn't get it. I may not get it, even if yeah. they say we, we want to put means testing on it. And some people won't get it as well, just just because of the means testing. But I think a more. What do you mean, more, by, do you mean by putting means testing on? Social so just security? just to keep it alive, if you put means testing on, you say only poor people get social security or middle class gets, but the, but the rich do not get social security that already ex- that already exists in social okay, security I'll, I'll just I'll just as a, like an example I'm not clear exactly on the details so I'll I'll take your word for it but I think of the more yeah, well I mean like so if if you fully retire 
and you don't own and like they don't there's no means testing on social security but like you can't get social security benefits and make a certain amount of income mm-hmm. so and that income doesn't just apply to wages it also applies to like um to like certain types of assets that only the rich have so if you're like absurdly wealthy you're not getting you're not getting social security already you're just, okay. just paying into it for other people okay so maybe like you know middle up, upper class or above but in general yeah, I'll take your word for it. The point I wanted to make is the moral point is that to some degree, obviously, we realize that the social security system is a kind of a Ponzi scheme where the, where, the, where the poor, sorry, where the young pay for the rich. And to some degree, even if you ask the elderly today, do you want your grandchildren to be enlisted to some sort of debt servitude? They would say, no, I, I worked all my life. I saved all my life. I don't want my grandchildren to be to be to have like 12.4% deducted from their what they can own i want them to be free and have as much opportunity as possible so there's a moral element here as well and uh, again it's very strange how the us implemented socialism also how it came about in general it, it, no one really asked for it it was uh, kind of like at the time snuck in as a sort of insurance policy and uh, yeah the whole thing is very strange to me at least. Yeah. I mean, well, the, another problem that people just kind of, <clears throat> which is weird to me, the conservatives don't talk about it is the effect of birth rates on, on the economy, right? Mm-hmm. Like do we have, we have net immigration, but like we kind of depend upon immigration and also depend that these people are paying into that these people are paying into a system via other forms of taxation as a means to fund social security because the boomers are being taken care of and we're not growing at a rate like like we're not like we don't have population growth like no no demographic in america is is at population replacement levels except well i mean that's not true like certain really small demographics if you look at like you know the amish or like you know um mormons you know there there are certain really small demographics but just like an ethnicity like when you break it down even like we're not hitting population replacement numbers which is a problem because for for a system like social security where you know um you have less and less people entering the market than people that need to be taken care of on social security yeah absolutely social security was was sold in a way that by the time someone retires, there'll be four young people to replace them. That's kind of like how they, they calculated it. Uh, I would say, just to, to your point with regards to population, uh, there is one secular, like, ri- richer country that doesn't have population issues, that's Israel. Uh, it does have, like, uh, religious people that have, like, 20 kids, but it also have secular people that have three kids or more. So th- that's, like, uh, an, uh, a different... It's something that should be studied because it's a uh, it's very unusual compared to everyone else. It it, it it's a different trend or it bucks the trend. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, the the problem with the social. I mean, security but Israel still has a. I mean, yeah. I mean, I would I would presume it's probably just a lot of cultural stuff there. We're not sure. We like objectivists think that there's a philosophical reason why people have less kids, and that's to do with optimism about the future. Also, like you could mm. say. You could say, like, look, if, if I'm in a city and I have to pay my... You, you could make the claim, like, I have to pay my student loan, I have to pay high rent in the city, to do all these things. How can I afford uh, to have kids? And I, 
I at the time just kind of I still had those pressures, but I just kind of prioritized my life to 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 have kids and and be able to pay for them. If that meant you know less video games, then that's what I had to do. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it it is an interesting thing to look at for sure. But um, is there anything else you wanted to talk about or mention? Uh, I think no. now is a pretty good time to for us to switch off and look at the Soho form uh, debate. Uh, and kind of continue this economic conversation by looking at a at a um, a debate. I, I'm super excited to see Gene Epstein see how he does. It's a really good debate. Uh, Gene Epstein does pull something from his from his sleeve that's really very interesting to watch. Uh, he he kind of you, you know the thing with inequality that income inequality that the uh, progressive don't, like don't fucking ruin nah don't fucking oh. ruin it for everybody. Like I haven't seen it yet. I'm ready. I'm gonna react to it. Don't don't tell okay. me his 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 number one zingers. Okay, right? So, like so it's very if interesting. If you haven't seen it, chat. It's if you haven't seen it, chat, like we're about to go. It's a very interesting debate, and he does do something. He does have some very good, useful tools that if you debate progressives, you should watch this uh debate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean I'm excited. Well, um, philosophical zombie hunter, you can find him on, um, you know, in the discord, pretty Zen human. Um, but on YouTube, it's philosophical zombie hunter. Uh, if you search for a philosophical zombie hunter on Twitter, uh, you're not going to fucking find it. Um, unless you already follow, don't, don't search for me on Twitter. I'm just, I'm just trolling constantly. It's like the opposite of my regular self. That is exactly what it's for. What are you talking about? That's just what constant, you do on Twitter. Constant trolling, sarcasm, <laughs> nonstop. Oh shit! All right, so we're gonna we're gonna get out of here. We're gonna um, I'm gonna get um some more water, and then when we come back, boys, we're gonna have um we're gonna have ourselves a little little debate. 